Okay, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Exodus chapter 26. For the past couple of weeks, we have been out of our sermon series in Exodus, and so I'm really glad to be jumping back into it this morning, and we're actually covering chapters 26 and 27, which are about the construction of the tabernacle, which is the place where God chose to dwell with his people Israel as they journeyed through the wilderness. And since it's been a few weeks since we've been in Exodus, let me quickly remind us of where we are at so far in this book. Remember back in the the beginning where God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt and he's brought them now out into the wilderness and even though they grumbled and complained, God was gracious and kind and merciful and he's provided for them. And now he brings them to the base of Mount Sinai where he establishes a covenant with his people to bless them and to make them a great blessing to the other nations. And on Mount Sinai, God gives them the law the Ten Commandments, instructions on how to be guided as a nation and how to love one another as they follow their God. And even more than this, God says, I'm gonna provide a way for you to experience my presence among you. And so he gives them instructions to build a sanctuary where he's gonna dwell with them in their camp. And in this sanctuary, this meeting place between God and Israel God will meet with them, and it was called the tabernacle. And this morning, we come to chapters 26 through 27, which are about the design of this tabernacle. And if you're here this morning, and perhaps you read a little bit ahead to see what we were going to be learning about, uh, you might have noticed that this is a very long section with lots of details about the size of curtains and the design of goat skins and the intricate entwining of gold and bronze rings with many poles. And if you've read it, you might come thinking this morning that this might feel like a long sermon. And I can't speak to whether or not this is going to feel like a long sermon. But what I can tell you is that there are few places in the Old Testament that speak more about the glory of God and the hope that we have in the gospel than these two chapters. In fact, one commentator says of these two chapters, the only building ever constructed upon this earth, which was perfect from its very beginning and onset in every detail, and never again needed attention, addition, or alteration, was the tabernacle in the wilderness. Every single detail was designed by Almighty God. Every part had a prophetic, redemptive, and typical significance. There is no portion of scripture richer in meaning, more perfect in its teaching of the plan of redemption than this divinely designed building, which God himself was the architect. And every detail points to some aspect of the character and work of the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And in its complete form, it is probably the most comprehensive, detailed revelation of Jesus, the Son of God, and the plan of salvation in the entire Old Testament. So hopefully that excites you a little bit for the next 35 minutes or so, as we'll be in these chapters. So turn your Bibles now to Exodus chapter 26. I'm actually going to invite Nathan Lee to come up and read these chapters for us. We have, in the next couple weeks, a particularly long section of chapters we're going to read through, so we might find some different ways to have these chapters read, and Nathan is going to read it for us this morning. Morning. This is God's Word, Exodus 26. 
Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits, and the breadth of each curtain, four cubits. All the curtains shall be the same size. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set. Likewise, you shall make loops on the edge of the outermost curtain in the second set. Fifty loops you shall make on the one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is in the second set. The loops shall be opposite one another. And you shall make fifty clasps of gold, and couple the curtains one to the other with the clasps, so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. You shall also make curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. Eleven curtains shall you make. The length of each curtain shall be thirty cubits, and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. The eleven curtains shall be the same size. You shall couple five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves, and the sixth curtain you shall double over at the front of the tent. You shall make fifty loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in one set, and fifty loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in the second set. You shall make 50 clasps of bronze and put the clasps into the loops and couple the tent together that it may be a single whole. And the part that remains of the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that remains shall hang over the back of the tabernacle. And the extra that remains in the length of the curtains, the cubit on the one side and the cubit on the other side, shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle on this side and that side to cover it. And you shall make for the tent a covering of tanned ram skins and a covering of goat skins on top. You shall make upright frames for the tabernacle of acacia wood. Ten cubits shall be the length of a frame and a cubit and a half the breadth of each frame. There shall be two tenons in each frame for fitting together. So shall you do for all the frames of the tabernacle. You shall make the frames for the tabernacle, twenty frames for the south side, and 40 bases of silver you shall make under the 20 frames, two bases under one frame for its two tenons, and two bases under the next frame for its two tenons, and for the second side of the tabernacle, on the north side, 20 frames, and there are 40 bases of silver, two bases under one frame and two bases under the next frame, and for the rear of the tabernacle westward you shall make six frames. And you shall make two frames for corners of the tabernacle in the rear, they shall be separate beneath but joined at the top at the first ring. Thus shall it be with both of them. They shall form the two corners. And there shall be eight frames with their bases of silver, 16 bases, two bases under one frame and two bases under another frame. You shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the frames of the one side of the tabernacle and five bars for the frames of the other side of the tabernacle and five bars for the frames of the side of the tabernacle at the rear westward. The middle bar halfway up the frames shall run from end to end. You shall overlay the frames with gold and shall make their rings of gold for holders for the bars. And you shall overlay the bars with gold. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. 
It shall be made with cherubim, skillfully worked into it, and you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver, and you shall hang the veil from the clasps, and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil, and the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place, and you shall set the table outside the veil, and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table, and you shall put the table on the north side. You shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen embroidered, embroidered with needlework, and you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold, and you shall cast five bases of bronze for them. You shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits, and you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes, and shovels, and basins, and forks, and firepans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze. And on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. And you shall set it under the ledge of the altar, so that the net extends halfway down the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. And the poles shall be put through the rings so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with boards. As it has been shown you on the mountain, so shall it be made. You shall make the court of the tabernacle. On the south side, the court shall have hangings of fine twine linen, a hundred cubits long for one side. Its 20 pillars and its, their 20 bases shall be of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And likewise for its length on the north side there shall be hangings a hundred cubits long, its pillars twenty and their bases twenty of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And for the breadth of the court on the west side there shall be hangings for fifty cubits with ten pillars and ten bases. The breadth of the court on the front to the east shall be fifty cubits, the hangings for the one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and three bases. On the other side, the hangings shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and three bases. For the gate of the court, there shall be a screen 20 cubits long of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen embroidered with needlework. It shall have four pillars and with them four bases. All the pillars around the court shall be filleted with silver. Their hooks shall be of silver and their bases of bronze. The length of the court shall be a hundred cubits, the breadth fifty, and the height five cubits, with the hangings of fine twine linen and bases of bronze. All the utensils of the tabernacle for every use, and all its pegs, and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. You shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light, that a lamp may be regularly set up to burn. In the tent of meeting outside the veil that is before the testimony, Aaron and his son shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. Amen. Thank you, Nathan. 
There are a few people I love hearing read God's word more than Nathan Lee. And may God now bless not only the reading of his word, but also the preaching of his word. So the verses that Nathan just read and their description of the tabernacle are one of the most, they're one of the longest and most detailed descriptions of anything that is ever talked about anywhere in God's word. In all of the Bible, there is no object, there is no place that is spoken of in more detail than the tabernacle. Think of Genesis in the beginning and, and the Garden of Eden and all the beauty of that dwelling place of God with man. Think of heaven in Revelation and its descriptions of our heavenly home. Think of the Gospels and their description of the tomb which Christ victoriously rose from. None of these places which are so dear and meaningful to us are described anywhere in the Bible with anywhere as much detail as is the tabernacle. And hopefully the, the, the great detail and attention that God gives the tabernacle, rather than when you come to it in your Bible reading plan, causes you to skip over it, hopefully rather it, it causes you to pause and say, why is this so important? Because church, this is so important. The description of the tabernacle and its court and, and its minute descriptions and detail communicate something profound about who God is and how he relates to us. As we spend time this morning examining the details of this tabernacle, here's what I think the, the Lord would have for us to consider. God is a holy God who has graciously drawn near to an unholy people. God is a holy God who has graciously drawn near to an unholy people. And I have four points for us this morning. The design of the tabernacle, the holiness of God, the unworthiness of Israel, and the shadow of things to come. So first, the design of the tabernacle. Like I mentioned, chapter 26 is this detailed description of instructions that God gave to Moses on that mountain on the building of the tabernacle. Now the word tabernacle in the Hebrew is the word mishkan, which means dwelling place. And so this building, which was really a, a large tent, was a place where God intended to live with his people Israel. His word and his presence were going to be manifested there. And remember, God has, God has revealed himself to his people before. In Exodus 13, God appeared to his people as a pillar of smoke and fire as he guided them through the wilderness. In Exodus 19, God appeared to his people at the base of Mount Sinai in thunder and lightning such that the whole mountain shook. In Exodus 20, God spoke his law to Moses. And now in chapter 26, God, who loves to speak to his people and reveal himself to his people, says, I will build this tabernacle, and this will be the place where I will dwell with you. And verse 30 says that God gave very specific instructions to Moses on how this dwelling place should be constructed, according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. It says in verse 30. And the reason that God is so concerned with the details of this tabernacle is because its design is meant to reveal something to us about God. The tabernacle is meant to serve as a picture of God's divine character. I'm sure that at, at some point, 
Many of us have, have taken a picture of something, perhaps a, a beautiful sunset or that perfect day at the beach or perhaps of your wedding day. And later you go back and you look at that picture and of course, it's not as beautiful as the real thing, but it, it brings you back to the beauty of that moment. And maybe you, you love this picture and you, you play this, this picture somewhere central in your house so that you see it often. And it reminds you of the beauty and the wonder of that day or that moment. And, th- and that's kind of what the design of the tabernacle is. It's a picture of who God is. It is a, a taste of his beauty and his holiness. Every detail is meant to tell Israel about God. And there is a lot of detail. Verses 1 through 14 are all about the design of the curtains that covered the tabernacle. Verses 15 through 30 describe the frame which serves as the main structure. Verses 30 through 37 are about these veils that cover the various entrances to the tabernacle. And now as we're reading through these verses, it it's a little hard to visualize exactly what we're what we're looking at, right? So to help, we have a picture here up on the screen. I think it's coming up, there it is. Um, and as we can see that the tabernacle is basically one very large tent. It's 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, and 15 feet tall. And the main structure is held to be, together by these beams of acacia wood that are linked together with all these poles to create this ladder-like structure that, that, that creates an easy way to dismantle it and then to rebuild it as Israel traveled through the wilderness. And the covering of this wooden frame was four large pieces of cloth and animal skin that that formed this tent-like covering. And the outer coverings were more rough and protective, while the inner coverings, the one that you could see if you were inside the tabernacle, was composed of beautiful and expensive linen of vibrant colors and blue and purple and intricate designs. And so you, you have this large tent, this covering of this wooden framework, and it was divided into two sections the holy place, and the most holy place. And if you entered the tabernacle, which only the priests could do, then you would walk through this large veil that serves as its entrance. And that'd be the one that's there on the right. And the first room that you would come to was the holy place, which was the larger of the two rooms. In this room, you had the altar of incense and the golden lampstand, the table for the bread of presence, which Joel spoke to us about a few weeks ago. But then if you kept going, you would come to the second room, the most holy place. And at this entrance to this room, there was another veil, but this one with golden cherubim woven into it. And only the high priest could enter this room. And even then, only once a year, he would make the annual sacrifices for all the sins of God's people. And this holy place contained the Ark of the Covenant and was a place where God's presence dwelled. So you have the tabernacle, a large wooden structure covered by multiple layers of fabric like this tent, and it was divided into two sections, the holy place and the most holy place. And the entrance to these sections were large veils that separated them from the outside and from God's people. So that's a quick look over there, and obviously it does not cover all the details that was just read, but, but it gives us a good overview And so now what I want to do is I want to talk about what all this detail means. What do these designs communicate about God? And specifically, what does the design of the tabernacle say about the holiness of God? Which leads us to point two. Now, it is somewhat 
a daunting task to talk about the holiness of God. For one thing, I'm not a very holy person, which I'm sure has not come as much of a surprise to all of you, but I am speaking of something which I am far removed from. And secondly, the holiness of God speaks to the core of who he is. And so, so nothing that I'm gonna say this morning is gonna come remotely close to communicating who God is adequately. But God is a generous God, and he loves to speak to us through his word. And he does so this morning through the design of this tabernacle. So I wanna make two quick observations here about what this design says about God's holiness. First, God is infinitely valuable, and second, he is transcendent above all things. One thing that you'll notice about the design of the tabernacle is that it was meant to be beautiful. Verse one, it says, you shall make the tabernacle with 10 curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and you shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. And in verse 29, you shall overlay the frames with gold and make their rings of gold for holders of the bars, and you shall overlay the bars with gold. So within the design of the tabernacle were were many golden overlays and vibrant, beautiful colors and skillful designs woven into the fabric. And this would have been an incredible contrast to the dull, colorless landscape of the desert in the wilderness. In fact, there are are skeptical scholars who, who read the stunning beauty of the tabernacle and claim that there is no way that these people in the desert could have produced the materials to make such a beautiful place. But of course, we remember that that when Israel left Egypt, Egypt was so glad to get rid of them because of all the the plagues that God was sending upon them, they they gave them abundantly of their possessions and value. And, And surely this is how Israel was able to build such a beautiful place. But regardless of of where the materials came from, the the tabernacle was beautiful in design and was incredible in its value. And the one thing that you see is that the closer you get to the holy of holies, which was the, the hot spot of God's presence in the tabernacle, the more beautiful and valuable the design was. The fabric that made up the outer tent was was rough and rugged, but the inner fabric the one that you would see was vibrant in color. The material in the outer courts was made of bronze and the further you got in, it was in silver and the Holy of Holies, gold. And all of this pointed towards God's great worth. And interestingly, almost all of the beauty of the tabernacle was inside the tent where God's people never even saw it. Only the priests were allowed in the temple. Hardly anyone in Israel ever even saw all of this beauty, but they knew of it. They knew of the value and the beauty within the tabernacle, and maybe every once in a while, if, if a priest entered through the curtain, they would see a glimpse inside. Or if a breeze wafted through the courtyard and it had peeled back the tent, they would see inside the beauty and the value and the glory in there, and they knew what it meant. The tabernacle was Israel's most valuable and most beautiful and most important possession, not because of the gold that was in there, but because of the God who dwelled in there. And that was the point of the tabernacle, 
The tabernacle was central to the life of Israel. They fellowshiped around it. They worshiped in this courts. They built their lives around this temple. And literally so, that the 12 tribes of Israel would literally encamp their own dwelling places around this tabernacle. It was the center of their camp. Literally, the temple or the tabernacle was the, the heart of their nation the most important place in the world to them because that is where God met with them. And David in Psalm 84 reflects on this tabernacle. He says, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Church, there is nothing more precious There's nobody more worthy of our praise. There is no beauty like that of our God. And anything of value in this life pales in comparison to him and only points towards his infinite value. The design of the tabernacle is meant to cause us to evaluate our hearts and ask, is God central to my life? Do I long to know him more? Am I building my life around him and his word? Do I think of him alone as worthy of my affections? Because he is, church. He is. And this is seen in the tabernacle, not only by what it says about God's beauty, but by what it also says about God's royalty and transcendence and otherness. The further you ventured into the tabernacle, the more majestic was its design. Inside covered with blue and purple, which signified royalty and dignity, the most holy place. In it rested the ark, which served as the throne upon which God sat. And verse 31 describes this veil that separated the most holy place from the rest of the tabernacle. And this veil had cherubim skillfully woven into it. Verse 31 says, you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen and shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked in. And to understand the significance of these cherubim, we need to consider the fact that in chapter 27, you entered the tabernacle from the east. And so as you entered this tabernacle, you came to the veil of the most holy place, and you would see cherubim facing east. And all this has deep meaning to it, because there's another place in the Bible that speaks of cherubim guarding the entrance to something. And that is in the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter three says that Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve sinned against God and God drove out man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim. And so the parallelism here with the tabernacle is clear. Humanity has sinned and been banished from God's presence. But the tabernacle has, bought, has brought the presence of God near again. And the holy of holies is symbolic of the Garden of Eden. And through its veil abides the creator of the universe, the giver of life, the almighty God who is high above us and alone is holy. And he has come to dwell with his people. However, the holiness of God demands that you do not come casually into his presence. The cherubim stood as a testimony to God's holiness, but also as a warning to Israel. 
No one could enter the most holy place. They could not draw too close to the presence of God. Only the high priest entered the Holy of Holies and then only once a year, but anyone else who entered that close to God's presence would be destroyed. And the reality of God's holiness is seen all throughout Scripture. Remember that story where where God passed by Moses on the mountain and even just the shadow of his passing was overwhelming to Moses. He came down the mountain shining with the glory of God such that it frightened the people and they covered, they veiled his face because even the glory of God seen secondhand was too much for the people. Remember the prophet Isaiah who saw the great vision of God in chapter six and says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the fountains of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. God is a holy God. And he would not allow Israel to come before him casually but cautiously. And the reason for this was that while God was holy, Israel was unholy. Which leads us to our third point this morning, the the unworthiness of Israel. After this detailed description of the tabernacle in chapter 26, chapter 27 speaks of the the courtyard that surrounded the tabernacle. And, and, and while God's people were not allowed in the tabernacle, they were allowed to enter this courtyard. This is where they would gather together to worship and to hear God's word proclaimed to them. And we have a picture of this courtyard as well. And what this was was a, a large area that surrounded the tabernacle. And you see this area was, was sectioned off by a perimeter of curtains with an opening on that east side that we talked about before. And the main object in this courtyard Beside the tabernacle was a bronze altar that stood in its entrance. And verses one through two of chapter 27 describe this. It says, you shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it and you shall overlay it with bronze. This altar was a place where animal sacrifices were made for the sins of God's people. The altar was the biggest piece of furniture in the tabernacle, measuring more than seven feet long, seven feet wide, and four feet high, and with these horn-like projections at all four corners. And, And on these horns is where the priests would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifices. And just as with the tabernacle, there was a great purpose to the design and the placement of this altar. As God's people entered the courtyard, they would see two things. They would see the tabernacle, and they would see an altar blocking their path. 
In the distance was the tabernacle, and within it the most holy place where the presence of the Almighty God dwelled, and you were not worthy to draw near. He is righteous, and you unrighteous. God is holy, and his holiness is a purifying power that consumes all that is wicked and corrupt and unholy. And because of this, no man or woman could enter his presence without being destroyed. Remember just a few chapters back in chapter 19, God gathered his people together at the base of Mount Sinai And he told Moses that God himself was going to come down the mountain that the people might see him and hear him. And God gave this warning to Moses. He says, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people and you shall set limits for all the people saying, take care not to go up to the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord and look, and many of them perish. Let also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. So even as God graciously came down the mountain to be with his people, his glory and his righteousness and his holiness require that he warn the people not to come too close. And now God's presence is not high up on a mountain, but it is in the holy of holies which sits in the middle of Israel's camp. His holiness is in their midst. And as God now designed the tabernacle, he placed an altar at the entrance as a statement to his people that they must not come near his presence unless a sacrifice is offered. In the Old Testament, animal sacrifices at this very altar were commanded by God so that his people could experience the forgiveness of their sins. And apart from these sacrifices, there was no being made right with God. Hebrews 9 reflects on this and says, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So Israel would bring these sacrifices to this courtyard and these sacrifices would die in their place. And if you stood outside the courtyard, Day and night you would see smoke rising up from this altar reminding God's people of the sacrifices being made to protect them from the holiness of God. And when God designed the courtyard and this tabernacle, he did so with a theme in mind. And that theme was limited access to God. The barrier around this courtyard was tall and it kept you from being able to peer into the temple. Veils four inches thick blocked the entrance to the holy places where God dwelled. And you could worship outside his house, but you could not come inside his house. And as you approached, something stood in your way, an altar, signifying something that is true of us today as well. And that is that we are not worthy to come to God on our own. And while this is an uncomfortable truth, it is a truth that deep down inside we know to be true. 
even though we spend a great deal of our lives often trying to suppress this truth, but we know deep inside that we are deeply flawed, that we do not live as we ought. And apart from God's grace, we cannot live as we ought. And, and we might try to compare ourselves to other people in order to feel better about ourselves, but we all have those moments of honesty in life, perhaps in those quiet moments at home late at night where we know that we have not lived as we ought, that God is right to call us sinners, that we are not worthy. And maybe you're here this morning and you have been suppressing that truth in your heart for a long time. But God's word would call you to acknowledge that truth and to not hide from the uncomfortable reality of our own sin. It is right to be uncomfortable in the knowledge that we stand before a holy God. He is on the inside and his righteousness and beauty and majesty and apart from his mercy, we are on the outside, unholy, unworthy, and unable to draw near. And that is the hard news that is at the core message of this book. That we do not have right on our own to come before God. And if you do come before him, you come before him not on your own terms, but on his. Because we are sinners and we do not deserve his presence. We do not deserve his love. And God owes us nothing. And if he does owe you anything, it is judgment Central to the message of Christianity is that God is holy and we are not. And our holiness is so severe that if we are to come before God, something or someone must die in our place. And if you don't believe that, church, then the tabernacle will have no meaning. And most of God's word will not make any sense to you. And the cross of Christ would be a myth. But church, the Christ of cross is no myth. And the gospel and his word has deep power to save. And his word is true. And the tabernacle has great, deep meaning for us this morning. And ultimately, the Old Testament tabernacle pointed towards something so much better. A coming day of redemption and the person who would bring that about. And this leads us to our fourth point this morning, and the most glorious of our four points this morning, a shadow of things to come. The design of the tabernacle speaks to the holiness of God, who has gloriously drawn near to us. But it also speaks of our unholiness, and how because of our sin against God, we cannot draw near to him on our own. An altar stood in Israel's way. A veil hid the presence of God from his people. Their access to him was limited. But church, God's word has good news for us this morning. The tabernacle was not God's final plan for dwelling with his people. A day was coming when that veil would come down and the altar would be no longer needed. And that day came when Christ gave his life for us on the cross. That is what the New Testament is about. 
That is what the Gospels speak of. In the book of Hebrews, which is all about the supremacy of this Christ, who is our true high priest, it speaks about how this Christ has reconciled us to God once and for all. In chapter eight, the author speaks of of our very passage in Exodus this morning and how all the things, all the details we have been talking about, they serve as a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. That's a quote from chapter 26. And early in Hebrews, he references the tabernacle as well. And he says, now the point of what we are saying is this. This is the point of Hebrews. This is the point of the gospel. This is the point of the Bible. That we have a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up. What all this means is that the tabernacle in the Old Testament ultimately pointed towards a future redemption, a future home in heaven where our Christ is seated as our great king and our high priest. And he has made a way for us to one day enter that heavenly place where we will see him in all his glory and majesty and holiness and we will dwell with him forever. See, God's plan was never to leave Israel in the wilderness separated from his presence by that veil and that altar. God was gracious, as gracious as he was to dwell with his people in the desert, a better thing was coming. The tabernacle that they carried with him was a copy and a shadow of a future and better day. It was a picture of a coming day when God would return his people to all that was lost in the Garden of Eden a place where there was no veil, no altar, because there were no limits to our access to God. And ultimately, that tabernacle is a picture of heaven and that coming day of unhindered fellowship with him. That is what God had planned for his people. And that's what God has planned for us, church. The final chapters of God's word in the book of Revelations speaks of this coming day. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. We will dwell with him and they will be his people for God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. This is our hope, church. This is the day that we long for. And like Israel, it is a day that has not yet fully been realized. We we too live in the shadows of things yet to come. But our shadows are brighter shadows. They are brighter because we know our high priest. We know what Christ has done. We know how he has stepped out of heaven and dwelt among us. And the altar that stood between us and God was an altar that Christ himself would place himself on and die willingly in our place. And in doing so, 
the veil between us and God has come down. Remember in the Gospels, when they describe that moment where Christ gave his life for us on the cross, Mark 15 says, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Do you know what curtain those verses are speaking about? It was the curtain in the temple that separated the most holy place from God's people. And Jesus ripped that curtain in half. It was torn from the top down. I mean that it was Christ and not us who has made a way for us to draw near to a holy God. Christ alone has done it. And now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Christ has done it, church. And what, are, what is our response Hebrews helps us and says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Not with caution, church, with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace. We might receive grace and mercy. We who are unworthy, we who are unholy, we who are uninterested in the most glorious thing in the world and unworthy to see it and unable to see it, we who are enemies of God, we who were unholy for us while we were yet still sinners. Christ died in our place and now we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Jesus tore down the curtains. He paid the price for our sins. The dividing wall between man and God has been abolished by the blood of Christ. The war against sin and Satan and guilt has been won. And we who are unholy have been made holy and can now draw near by the blood of Christ. And so church, let us this week and this morning come near to God with confidence. For he has done it. Even though sin remains, unholiness remains in our lives, we have received grace and mercy because of what Christ has done. Let us come with confidence. Let us sing loud praises with confidence, even as we long for that coming day where we will see him face to face. That day is coming, but we do not wait for that day to rejoice because Christ has already won the battle. He has made a way for us to draw near. All glory be to Christ.